Much of our lives are routine. They're routine because routine plays an important part in our lives. It kind of keeps us in balance and gives us a schedule to go by each day, if nothing else, right? Think about the parents of a baby. Routine is precious. You wake up every two to three hours and you feed the baby. Just as you get to sleep, you wake up and you feed the baby and you change the diaper. You go back to sleep, you get up, you feed the baby. And now it's been a total of about six or eight hours at night and you're worn out. The baby cries again. You get up, you feed the baby. The baby cries again three hours later. And because you laid her in the bed with you or him in the bed with you, you just roll over and feed the baby <laughs> because you're exhausted by the routine. And you're looking at your spouse who's lying there sleeping through it all. And you're praying for something for your spouse. <laughs> Unfortunately, your spouse can't help you. All they can do is sleep for you. And that doesn't seem fair, does it? Think about parents of young children. Think about the routine. You watch them. You try to entertain them. You keep them busy. You take them to child care, to preschool. Every day you get them up. You want, get to make sure they brush their teeth because they'll forget every day if you don't remind them, right, because they're young. You tell them to eat, eat, eat. Soon they're not wanting to eat. You tell them if they don't eat, they don't get the dessert. They look at you and smile and think they can work you around, right? Every day, same thing. There's a routine for raising young children. Most jobs and vocations that people are employed in they, too, to one degree or another, are routine. Let's take the boring job of being a heart surgeon. They take a knife, they open you up, they look inside there, there's this big, blump, red thing that's throbbing. They cut the arteries, they cut another place to get some more arteries, and they put them together, and they sew you back up. Routine. Right? I remember when the doctor came in and told my dad, when he was having open heart surgery in 1978, when it was still relatively young, the doctor looked at my father and said, don't worry, it's a routine surgery. No more dangerous than having your appendix out. And I thought that might be the end of the doctor's practice. <laughs> I saw that look. I had seen it in my daddy's eye before, and I started talking to the doctor because I figured he was about to meet Jesus. <laughs> my father, being a simple guy, did not see how taking your heart out and lying it on the table and working on it and putting it back in could possibly have the same mortality rate as having your appendix out. I don't think we ever got that one justified in our own minds. But that's what the heart sur surgeon said, and it is true. It's routine. It's routine when the doctor took the little scalpel and separated the muscles on each side of my eye, both eyes, rather. She told me it would be routine. She said some of it is kind of practice to see exactly how far we have to move it. And I said... Um, she said, but it won't take but 30 minutes to do it all. And I said to her, take as long as you need. <laughs> I'm already knocked out. Uh, be careful. Those are my muscles and my eyes. Routine, she said. My job is routine. Although some people would say, being a pastor is routine. Every day, I return phone calls. 
I've learned every day to return texts. I've even learned to return emails, as painful as it is. Every week, usually, most weeks, I go to meetings. Every week, I try to pray and to listen to God and find a sermon for which to share with you. Every day, or in different times, I teach classes. For 38 years, I work with staff. In the first church I went in, I walked in and to that church, and it was Monday, and I was starting a new church, and it was a first full-time appointment after seminary after, well, I had about 18 months as an associate, but I walked into the church, and there was nobody there to unlock the door. There was nobody there to talk to. There was nobody for me to do anything with except to work in that big old church by myself. I figured out something that needed to happen, so I got out of the chair and went to the post office and visited with everybody I could find. I heard everybody gathered at the drugstore, so I went there too and visited with people there. Then I went to the uh, Bobcat country where everybody was there in Salina talking about the football team, and I hung around there longer than I should. Well, then it was after lunch, and there's still half the day left, and I went back to church, and there was still nobody there. So I hired a part-time secretary. I had to have somebody to talk to. It was, in varying degrees, however, still routine. Now, routines can be enjoyable. You saw the children, they got set down, and some of them really didn't want to get up, right? They like their seat. They like to sit there and talk to each other. Getting up and breaking their normal routine was a little bothersome. First of all, they didn't know what we were going to do or where we were going to go or when we were going to get back, but they got up anyway. And even though routine can be enjoyable, keeping up with that routine in my life is really the most urgent thing because there's so many things, to, so many balls to keep moving in the air. And that has a certain kind of urgency about it in the pastoral ministry, the vocation. All those things must be done, but sometimes some of them can seem less exciting than others. How about your job? You do a lot of the same things over and over again, don't you? It doesn't matter what you're doing. You have learned to cope with your reality and your work by doing the same kind of thing over and over. It's one of the things that delivered me from being an accountant. I thought I wanted to be an accountant. It seemed like a good job. Math was relatively easy. And then I started putting numbers in boxes and completing assignments. And I thought, I could do this all the rest of my life? And I changed my major. Because I couldn't put numbers in boxes all my life. That just wasn't for me. And so I wandered around trying to figure out what was for me. All the time, God trying to call me to do something different. You know, it's not just people, though, that do the routine, is it? Some, not only are some jobs routine, but, but churches get into routines too, don't they? Somebody asked me once, um, we, don't, we didn't have a bulletin ready for church. They said, how are you going to know what we're doing? I said, don't worry, every preacher knows what's coming next in a church service. Oh, not, not the church I used to go to. They never had a bulletin. I just said, doesn't matter. They still knew what was coming next. Because the routine of how you worship, how many songs you sing, what songs you sing, rotates between about 50 to 75 songs in most congregations. Whatever you do, you do it as a matter of kind of the Spirit leads you, but the Spirit always seems to lead us into routines, right? I could break the routine right now and just sit down and you'd be disturbed because I didn't finish the sermon, wouldn't you? Yes, you would, and for good reason. All things can seem important, but not all things are equally important. And you know what? Some things are just not very exciting, are they? Now, one of the most exciting things we do at church is we have staff meetings. 
staff love to come to, to meetings and be together for a couple hours, right? They love to solve each other's problems, especially. And they especially like to hear me talk on and on and on, right? Staff meetings can be like everything else, right? Even the life of a disciple can be routine. In fact, I would say if the one thing I have fought most against in my life as a pastor for these 38 years is churches that live in the routine. They like the way things have been done. They like the way things are being done. And they don't want things to be changing too much in the future because they know the routine. They find strength in, in the routine. They find comfort in the routine. That's all in good, but it doesn't jive with this story we're reading. You just heard Cindy read today at all, does it? doesn't seem like that at all. We ask for prayer in our daily lives. We maybe you start the day off with prayer, saying, God, give me what I need today. Uh, be with me wherever I'm going and lead me. And then we take off to do what we plan to do all along. Not really planning to change our routine much at work unless God happens to get in our way and want us to do something different. And then we can sometimes get attended. We come to church as a routine. People say, you know, I don't know how many people I've talked to in the 38 years who've quit attending church regularly and I go to visit them. You know, their most common excuse is, we just got out of the routine. Uh, and I have often come to say, especially in later years, oh, so going to church was just a routine for you. Just a habit. Right? I don't think that's what Jesus is searching for or seeking when he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He's not seeking for people who are looking for the comfort of a routine but rather he is looking for people who might be a little bit bored with life, who might have found a little bit of life monotonous, who might have found that the same old, same old produces the same old, same old results. Jesus was walking on the Sea of Galilee, and he did a strange thing. He began to call people who were busy about their work to come and follow him. Seeking them, finding them and calling them, and then leading them forward as a way of discipleship is a model that Matthew presents us. Now, one of the great quests for the American church in these years is how do we get the young adults interested? What do we do to bring back the young people to church and those who are not quite so young again? Well, let's see. Let's think about that. What do youth and young adults crave most in life? Let's see. Hmm. Would it be routine? Would it be doing the same thing over and over again without anything different really happening? Or would it be rather fun? It's a novel concept for churches that we should have fun and joy when we come to worship. It's a novel thing for churches that it should be thrilling to see what's going to happen in church. It's a novel church the novel thought for many churches that excitement is essential to following Christ. Even danger excites young adults or thrills them. There's a reason they jump out of perfectly good airplanes to parachute. It's not to conquer the enemy. It's just to conquer their own fears and their own boredom. There's a reason that they keep constantly busy because they haven't really found true purpose in life. 
There's a reason why excitement, even danger, can be thrilling to them, and we keep building more games to excite them. There's a reason why we get really angry when that which excites us is taken away. Shame on Green Bay. I mean, we had a journey. We were on the way. We had a great season. We had rookie quarterbacks. We should have been playing today. Instead, I'm going to watch a football game that I want to beat each other. But given all circumstances, I really hope Atlanta does their thing because I want to be convinced that somebody better than the Cowboys is in the playoff. If Green Bay wins, I'll just be madder. We love the excitement of football. When it's over, people's attitudes change. We like the changing seasons. Christmas is great as long as it doesn't last too long. And then we can get back to the comfort and security of routine. So into this situation of routine, we tell people, come and join the church. We'll promise you we'll do the same thing over and over again. They go, well, what else might you do that wouldn't be the same? Well, it'll be different because you're there. And they said, not so much. Not so much. Doing the same thing has its advantages because we learn how to do it well. It can have its disadvantages, or seemingly so to us, when it threatens us or causes us into areas where we're uncomfortable. In this passage of Scripture that Cindy read for you, we get a clear picture of God and Jesus and just exactly what it looks like to really follow God. Jesus had a clear sense of what he was doing. He was, first of all, seeking. He walked the seas of Galilee. He didn't go and sit down somewhere and say, I'm here. I'm the Son of God. Y'all come on in. Nope, didn't do that. He got up, and he started walking around the Sea of Galilee. Now, you think, well, he was just taking a walk by the sea. No, he was not looking for a pretty sunset. He'd be seeing those since eternity. He walked around to find the people that he was looking for. They didn't even know that he was looking around seeking them, but he was. And when he found them, he gave them a call. Come with me. Drop your nets. Drop your livelihood. Drop your accounting career. Drop your heart surgery. Drop being a mom. Drop being a dad. Come and follow me. And we are aghast at that point, aren't we? Because what do they do? They drop it all, and they follow him. What kind of nuts were these men? I mean, can you imagine what happened if they stopped by home to get a spare robe if they had one? Honey, going to follow Jesus, see you in a couple of years or when we come back through. What about the fishing? Don't worry, somebody else will catch them. Will they give me money? Don't worry, I'm with Jesus. It's a dumb decision, right? There's no prudence in it. How are they going to live? Where are they going to sleep? What are they going to do? What does he mean, make us fishers of men? Who is this guy? And why did I drop my nets and follow him? You wonder what they thought about three miles down the road. You know, I've been thinking this thing over, Jesus, and I'd like a little more information. Well, exactly what does this job pay? And what other benefits? When will I get back home to see my kids? That's what we would think, right? Or we might think very spiritually, you know, they knew that this man Jesus was the Son of God. 
They'd been hearing about his miracles already, even though he was just beginning his ministry. They'd heard that John the Baptist hadn't even wanted to baptize him. Maybe they'd heard that. But you know what? We don't know any of that. Because in Matthew, he tells us nothing. He doesn't tell us anything about a mental process going on. It doesn't look like they put any thought into following Jesus or not. And in fact, they says they immediately, he says it over and over again in this book, they immediately, says it over and over again in the book of Mark too, they immediately left what they were doing and they followed Jesus. And some of you are going, oh my God, he's fixing to ask us to do the same thing. <laughs> no, I'm not. Not immediately. <laughs> not immediately. But Jesus sure did. They immediately left their livelihood, their boats, their nets. That's what it means when it says you left them. Two of them left their father who owned the business and had trained his sons in the business. They left their father. In a patriarchal system, that was very symbolic. So they immediately left behind all their points of security and their tie to the world. It is an amazing thing that they were called to do that. This God who seeks and calls and leads gives us this amazing story in Matthew so it would be clear to us that the most important thing about following Jesus is to be obedient. That whenever Jesus calls us, we are ready to respond. And whenever Jesus calls us, we leave behind whatever is in the way of us answering that call of Jesus. Jesus didn't call all the people in Galilee to leave their jobs. He just called about a dozen. And another 50 or so followed him around as his ministry grew. But he didn't call them all to do that, but he did call these first ones to do that. And without any background, without any qualifying papers, they didn't even know who he was. They got up and they followed him. Jesus offers his job with no pay, no instructions, and no promise of what tomorrow would bring. And they dropped everything and left him. And we wonder, why? If we think about it very long, we wonder, how? What does it mean to me that they would do that? What did their children think? Those are all good and logical questions, right? Yeah, I know some people say, oh, it wasn't so uncommon for men to follow rabbis in that day. And... You know, maybe they had heard about Jesus. They give all kinds of plausible reasons. The trouble is Matthew doesn't say any of that. Instead, he makes the amazing point that they left everything behind to follow this man, Jesus. Now, we understand big decisions in our lives to some degree. We make one. The biggest decision we make early on, I would say, in our teenage years is we decide, we make the decision whether or not we're going to follow the crowd and do what the crowd does or we're going to be our own person. We're either going to drink alcohol before the proper age. We're going to use drugs and try them out and experiment with them. We're going to engage in relationships with the opposite sex, so the same sex in these days in which we live, as, our, as if it's our own right. Those are the biggest decisions we make, whether we're going to follow what we've been taught, or whether we're going to do what we want to do because everybody else is doing it. But it doesn't take long before that we begin to make other big decisions. I say that one of the big decisions we make and we struggle with it is what are we going to do with our life? What am I going to I go to college and we take courses 
And they're very good at confusing us more with what we take in the first year or two. And then we're supposed to declare a major and know what it is we want to do. And a lot of young adults just don't know what that is. They've not they've been listening to the right persons, the right voices to determine that. But that's not all, is it? We make a big decision when we decide to take a person to share life with. I would say that's the first great big decision we make in life. It has constant implications for not only the choice we make at the time, but for the rest of our lives. Who is I, am I going to walk and live with through this life? And then we get settled into a job, but we seek other things, right? We get offered a promotion. We must decide where we're going to move or stay. We get offered to change careers into a different job, and we have to decide, should I do this or that? We, anything gets challenging when you get older, right? You have to decide, am I going to retire or not? Usually preceded by a prior question, will I be able to eat regularly if I retire or not? What will I do with my time if I retire or not? But then sooner or later, you have to make a decision. And if you don't, somebody will make it for you. You're retiring in three months. You know, that's the way the world works, right? Sometimes we make big decisions revolving around other people and their needs. We have a chance to do something heroic. We have a chance to affect someone's life in a powerful way. But it involves a little risk or us taking a chance of being called nosy, or us being called threatening because we're entering someone else's lives. And we really don't like that risk thing that comes with it. These disciples left behind what they knew and what was routine to go into an unknown future in order to follow Jesus. There they find the fullness of God's mission and purpose for their lives. Now understand, this flies right in the face of what the way most churches are organized today. We have a discipleship models that are basically this, regardless of the names we use. You've seen some of these names around here, I bet. Know, grow, go. Know, know Jesus, know God. Grow, study the scriptures for, I don't know, six months to 47 years. And then maybe you'll be ready to go out into ministry. The model of Jesus in discipleship in Matthew is a little different. He says, go. First, go. Follow. In other words, go, follow. Grow as you're going. And then know after you've been going and growing. Jesus knows something fundamental about humanity, I think. We'll find many, many ways not to go. Because in going, we have to confront the unknown, do the unexpected, and take big risks. I've not been a part of very many churches who wanted to take very big risks. You know that estimate of giving card that you turn in at the end of the year? It's calculated risk, right, Brian? We know what you're planning to give us, but we also know that can change during the middle of the year if your job changes or your health situation changes. But we make a budget anyway. And that budget is based upon the amount of what 
people estimate they're going to give, a certain amount we know we've gotten in our year's history that we call unpledged giving. And the third thing that goes into it is risk. How much are we going to grow each year? How much of the, the giving do you think we anticipate growing each year? What would you say? What would you guess? 10%. What else? There's not another thought in the house. Somebody on the finance can t tell me what we think. About 3%, right? We figured 2 or 3% we might grow unplanned giving. Well, what do you think it should be, Doug? I don't know. I don't really care. I, I really, in some ways, don't care about what we set the budget at. Because Brian will tell you, I'll just spend whatever we get anyway. Because we'll never have enough. Because there's a lot of hungry people in the world. We'll never have enough time from people either, will we? These disciples, let me say it again, left careers, went with Jesus, and they over time begin on-the-job training. Then they begin to know at the end who Jesus really was. Maybe it's time in the culture in which we live for Christians to go first. Go from their places of comfort, from their sanctuaries and their Sunday school classes and their classes of learning to actually getting out there in the world where life is cruel and mean and challenging and where it pushes us beyond what is expected into the exciting possibility that we might be able to share in another person's life in a way that makes all the difference in the world to them. It's not comfortable doing that. And for many of us, it's a long journey. The God who has illustrated to us in himself that he values initiative and he values calling and those who follow. And he is ready to lead us, any disciple who's ready to go. Now, this is not totally new to us. There's a reason that Chiv is in Cambodia. It's because some of the people of this church thought that he should go back to Cambodia and start a ministry. And I'm told that at first when they said that to him, he said, no, 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 I've been in Cambodia. I escaped the killing fields. If I go back to Cambodia, they might kill me, imprison me, and I'd be back in a world I don't want to be. I hope he didn't say all of that, but I'm told he said some of it. Where is he today? Letting cars drop on his foot in Cambodia with six churches who've been started because six or seven people said, God is saying for you to go. Chip just figured if those people told him God was telling him to go, he would go. But you know what? Those people also said, we'll go with you. And people have been going with him ever since. Just like they went with Jesus, they went with Chip. Now, I don't know how they're doing anything over there since they don't speak the language at all. But somehow they're building parsonages and houses and wirings, and I guess they're repairing cars. I don't know what else they're doing. And I don't know how they converse about it. Would you, would you turn that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? I don't know. Chiv, what are they saying? But they're over there, and they're serving because they heard the call of God to say go. Every missionary 
that hears the call to be a missionary knows that they're going to leave behind the comfort of their career and the certainty of employment doing a job where they will never probably know exactly what they're going to receive in income and there will never be enough to meet the needs of their mission nor meet their needs when they get older and retire. That's pretty much what the disciples did. They were missionaries, weren't they? And missionaries still make that call today. And although some routine is unavoidable, and although routine is necessary, routine can also be deadly. It can kill the soul of a church. And I don't mean just first church or second church anywhere. I mean the church broadly. When the church gets settled, it begins to die. It happened all across Asia and parts of the ancient church. It's happened in Europe, and it's happening in our own land, is it not? Anywhere from 50 to 70% of our nation is really not following Jesus. And that's just saying that those who are actively Christian are, and quite frankly, many of our active Christians are in the routine of coming to church on Sunday morning and going home and praying for their daily needs. I'm not talking about y'all yet, so don't get excited. I'm talking about other churches, right? Now, what Jesus comes to do is to change things around. He came seeking and calling so he could lead them to where they needed to be. And that's a hard message for people to hear. I'm qualified to speak about how hard it is to change what you've been doing. I remember once a district superintendent gave me a, a commendation that I had, wasn't asking for at the time. They were talking to me about where I was going and how I was going to serve. And he said, well, he, Doug Miller's going there because... Doug Miller is used by God to change cultures. I'd never heard it said about what I was doing that. I went home and thought a lot about it and thought a lot about it since then, changing cultures. When I was called into ministry, I was sitting in a little congregation, a peaceful little group of 140 that were driving me insane. I remember our most important board meeting once was in that little Methodist church that had a youth group of around 50 to 60 coming in a town of 2,000, was we couldn't afford to keep doing that youth ministry because, you know, half those kids aren't even ours. That's a problem, isn't it? I can't tell you exactly what I said at that board meeting, but as a young adult, I did have something to say. I probably should have been quiet. But I disturbed the peace and tranquility greatly. And I remember the old saint's name who looked at me at horror as if to say, Who are you? And I didn't really know why I was saying what I said. But I do know this. If the churches of these United States don't get away from the patterns that are routine in their churches, and don't go out to where people are by walking around the seas of Galilee, named all kinds of streets, then the United States church is going to do exactly what it's done everywhere else. It's going to take a revival 
a word we don't even use anymore in these churches, but it's going to have to be real. That the church in these United States is going to break the pattern that has occurred everywhere else. And if the pattern continues, then God will be even more present in Africa and the Far East and South America where Christianity is exploding and growing as it continues to travel around the world. But what will that have said about us? I don't know of any people, any national group of people that is more suited culturally and emotionally and gifted-wise than the American church to break a cycle that has seemed unbreakable in every continent. We can break that cycle because Americans love frontiers. We love action. We've just gotten comfortable in the routine of doing church. Jesus doesn't call just the big church into discipleship. He calls individual congregations into discipleship. And not just individual congregations. He calls individuals, and I'm talking about you now and me. There's a general call to discipleship. It's not a call to missions. It's not a call to quit your job. But it is for everyone a call to examine everything you do and see if you really do love Jesus with your all. Is Jesus really more important than your wife? Or your husband? Is Jesus really more important than your kids? I know you're getting horrified at these, and I mean for you to be. Because I'm going to tell you what the biblical answer to those questions, those questions are. The answer is simple. Yes. Christ would be first in our lives if he's going to be anything. And what you find, as I found in ministry, when I knew that God was calling me to go into the Methodist church, I'm like, woe is me. My life is ruined. I could end up living in Wiley. That's so much more awful than Farmersville. I could end up living in the city. That would be beyond, beyond, beyond anything I ever wanted to do. Paris had 25,000 people in it, and I thought I was going to the city then. It had more than one restaurant. That's what qualified you for a city. It even had a Bell's place you could shop in a little small Walmart. I thought that my children would be deprived because they were going to be pastor's kids, and I believe that y'all would ruin them because y'all would expect more of them than you expected of other children. And I thought I might be tempted to do the same. We avoided that temptation. I've got normal center children. Hi, darling. <laughs> You're just the oldest. You're not the only one. Thank you, yes, yes. I've moved to some places that I never thought I would. I remember going to Salina thinking, this would be an awful place to be the pastor. It's got a little church sitting there on a square, and all the little houses around it look like they had about one bedroom, and the town's poorest living right around them. And I thought, oh, God, you know, surely this isn't where I ended up, right? Guess where I ended up three months later? And I said when I got there, this is it, right? I mean, I'll never go any farther north, right? I like the 75 Carter, Lord. That's where I'm comfortable. Next church, Bonham, Texas. Second poorest county in the world. God's laughing. And the bishop, too, probably. Sally, not so much. <laughs> Got to go there, Doug. Church is dying. 750 members, 
total children's population of 25 ever died. I didn't know I knew how to do that, but God knew that he could use me some way. Don't take me any farther east, Roy. This is it, right? Back south, Paris country. I thought, well, at least I've escaped the city. And then eight years after being in Paris one day, God said, I think you ought to go to Frisco. I said, you should check that out with the bishop. He makes appointments here, not you, God. <laughs> Frisco is a city. I got nothing to do with cities. Where'd I go? And not only that, I went and told the DS I wanted to go to Frisco. And that is certain death for a pastor. And the Methodist church, if you go and tell them where you want to go, where God's calling you to go, you can be sure that's not the message they're going to hear. I thought it was my safety weapon. I went to Frisco. I was going to retire there until you people. <laughs> Carrollton, I live in Dallas County. I never was supposed to live in Dallas County. I'm a 3,000 city person. I like the country. Not as much as I used to, however, when I go back now. I don't understand all that, but that's another journey. But here I am. I haven't lost any weight. And I'm having a great time. I thought I was going to retire. Next year was actually the year. Next year is not the year now. Schedule's a little longer. But what I believe is the reason I'm here is simple. I believe God still wants to seek the lost. And he's finding, trying to find some congregations that believe that too. And who will organize their finances their time and their energy, not around so much each other, although they'll continue to do that, but around the others that aren't here. I believe you're one of those congregations. And I want to help with that project if I can. But I'm seeking some people who are really willing to lead that movement. Because it, we don't know what that future will hold or exactly what it will look like. We just know we're supposed to go. We're going to be offering you all kinds of opportunities, but it's up to you if God is calling you to go. Just like it was to each of those disciples, they had to decide to drop their own nets and go. How much time have I used up? All of it. More than I thought. Oh, well. That's another problem you have. Pray about that for me. If it won't cause any change, but go ahead and pray. <laughs> I believe we are about to do what most churches don't accomplish. Because I've seen it happen, and it can happen here easily in some senses, and yet very difficult in some others. Some of you remember the 70s in this congregation when this church was on fire for saving the lost. We need to light that fire again. Just like the song says, set our hearts on fire for others. I believe you will. You could prove me wrong, and in proving me wrong, we're going to both be miserable. Just warning you, I'm a lot nicer and happier if you're proving me right than if you're proving me wrong. God is going to change this part of the world through you people. The very ones of you sitting here, 
We're going to teach you as we're going at the same time. We're not going to wait another six months to study to do this. We're going to get started, and we're going to get started soon. You will decide how God is going to use you in the midst of it. I can hardly wait. I'll admit it. This wasn't really the sermon I, I intended to preach today. I had it all thought out yet last week. I was going to talk about seeking and calling and following. Instead, I really ended up talking about the urgency and the motivation to change. To change the inertia bravely and with purpose and intentionality to save the lost of the world. Let's pray. Gracious God, I love you. These people love you. We have many gifts, many members, much we can do. We're going to be looking for you as we get up to go to follow you. Looking for you to lead us out into this world in the kinds of ways that are loving and kind and winsome. The kinds of ways that will bring in the lost and the hurting and the hungry and the dirty and the unfed, the unclothed. Those who are wallowing in sin on a regular basis. Those who hate the church and don't believe in you. We're looking for them, Lord. Just like you were seeking followers and then all of the followers and following you were seeking the lost, so we intend to seek the lost today. I pray, Lord, that you will run over these people with the lost. When they go to the prison, send those who are most lost to them. When they go to their neighborhoods, send the hard-headedest neighbor in the, in the block. When they go to work, give them the words to mesh and mingle work and vocation with you. And the courage it takes to do all those things. We are yours. We are yours.